kind of addendum episode to our discussion with Dr. Daniel Large, and I have on the line uh, Miss Leslie Ann Warner, and uh, she's a good friend of mine and a blogger, but I'm, I'm selling you short. Why don't you tell the audience who you are and what you do? Sure, Winslow. First of all, thank you for having me on. I'm happy to be part of your podcast and I am a Africa security analyst at the at CNA's Center for Strategic Studies. Awesome. And well, you you've you know part of the reason I contacted you is because you know African security well, and and you've been kind of one of the go-to people in the D.C. area about uh, South Sudan. Yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that I, uh, I've i written quite a bit on South Sudan, mostly on the uh, Sudan People's Liberation Army, which used to be the anti-government, uh, anti-government of Sudan uh, rebel movement in the South, the, the major one, but by no means the only one. And I've been writing about um, the government's approach, the government of South Sudan's approach to non-statutory armed groups and their concurrent effort to right-size the SPLA. So that's been my area of focus. That well, that that that's that's really neat. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about how you got into this subject and and some of the the, the research that that you've done on it? Sure. So, I started off following the post uh, comprehensive peace agreement um, trajectories of Sudan and what would become the Republic of South Sudan, and the more I got into looking at what post-referendum South Sudan would look like. So just to refresh your your listeners' memory, there was a... And refresh my memory. (laughs) So as part of the 2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement, or CPA, that was signed between um, the government of Sudan and the SPLA in the South, um, there was to be a referendum, which was held in 2011 on South Sudan's independence. And in that referendum, South Sudanese overwhelmingly voted for uh, independence from Sudan. And actually, I think um, as a side note, that's an important uh, point of reference because there's been a lot of reports about how the international community is to blame for creating this this failed state. That South Sudan was a pre-failed state, which is which I personally find insulting to South Sudanese agency because it ignores the fact that they themselves voted for this referendum, much like the people of Eritrea voted for in a referendum for independence from Ethiopia in 1993. Anyway, so I had been following this this trajectory of South Sudan, and I started to notice that there were fissures under the surface within South Sudan that that bubbled to the surface after the 2010 uh, presidential and and legislative elections in, in what was then Southern Sudan. And what I noticed is that there were these, there was a proliferation of armed groups after the April 2010 elections, and some of the people were just opportunists and trying to see if they could get the government to buy them off. Other people were um, were SPLA commanders who had been slighted, or they were former SPLA commanders who tried their hand at politics and were unsuccessful, so they tried to run as independents against uh, state-sanctioned SPL- SPLM candidates and failed and decided to start armed movements. And what I realized is over the, the following year or so, the government of South Sudan would essentially try, they, they had an open door amnesty policy. So they would offer these defectors, um, these rebel leaders an amnesty and then offer as, as part of their agreement, they would offer these uh, armed group leaders 
integration of their forces into the SPLA. But at the same time, another thing that, that piqued my curiosity was that the SPLA at the signing of the, S, of the CPA was about maybe 150,000 people. And then within a very short amount of time, it grew to, actually, no one knows how big it is, but the highest estimates are that they have about 230,000 people. But they're trying to right-size the SPLA or reduce the parade down to 120,000. And so you can see how it's it's very interesting that they're they're basically paying paying people not to fight the government by, by buying them off, but they're trying to also right size the military to reduce costs. So there's that those competing imperatives. So that's how I got you know a long story of how I got into that particular aspect of South Sudan. <laughs> wow, I'm no um, and, and and to our listeners, I want to let you know this is not going to really talk that much about China. Um, we're we're going to really discuss um, some of the nitty gritty details of South Sudan and some of the the policies of of Uganda and Sudan with South Sudan. So there's more of a um, looking at South Sudanese agency and, and the agency of other African actors. So if you're looking for some real China talk, get out because it's not <laughs> going to happen. Uh, it, and as as always, um, you know, I tried to line up some South Sudanese guests didn't quite work, but this weekend we got something really cool planned, but I'm not, I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but uh, Leslie obviously knows her stuff, so we're just <laughs> let, laying that out there. All right, well, then, if can can you speak a little bit, if, if you're comfortable, about, about some of the, the f- taking us through um, December 15th until some of the stuff going on now, and then what... Sudan and Uganda have, have been doing uh, for, for South Sudan? Sure. So by now, um, the story of what happened in mid-December in Juba uh, is pretty well known. But just to recap, um, in mid-December, there was an internal political dispute within the ruling um, SPLM, which resulted in clashes in Juba that then spread to what was called the, the Greater Upper Nile area. So Jonglai State um, and Unity State, and I believe subsequently Upper Nile State. And uh, now it's, I don't know if I would necessarily call it a civil war, but it's, it's definitely, it started off as a very small scale political dispute that had been a long time coming, uh, arguably since uh, president Salva Kiir sacked his cabinet, including his his former vice president Riek Machar, uh, back in mid 2013. So what we have now is uh, there's reports daily of major towns in this in the Greater Upper Nile area switching hands between rebel forces and government forces, but at the same time there are um, negotiations going on in neighboring Ethiopia in the in the capital Addis. And what day is it today? I think today's the 20th. So about five days ago, uh, a draft of a cessation of hostility started to be circulated, but the problem is it hasn't been signed. And what other analysts are speculating is that both the rebel forces and the government forces will continue fighting over territory to see who can get the upper hand before they actually um, sign a cessation of hostilities. So th- at the end of the day, this document is is pretty meaningless, in my opinion. Whew. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there space for um, the international community and the African international community to uh, to to kind of help 
push through a peace process or, or mediate. And man, I know how problematic that is. I know issues of foreigners coming in, of neighboring countries coming in. I, I, I completely acknowledge that. But is there a space? And what is the role of Sudan and, and, and Uganda, the two countries that, that I think you know uh, quite a bit about in this arena? So in the media, the United States gets a lot of credit for bringing about the peace agreement that led to peace between Sudan and South Sudan. However, many people forget that it was actually EGOD, or the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, that started this peace process back in 1991. Mind you, it was one of many peace processes that didn't go anywhere for much of the decade, but it was the EGOD peace process that the U.S. and the rest of the international community um, contributed to, which actually brought about the CPA in 2005. And the reason I bring this up is because EGOD, again, is the one taking the lead with peace negotiations in in Addis right now. So they, they do have some um, level of legitimacy from a historical standpoint. Um, what the problem I'm seeing is is that Uganda is a member of EGOD, but uh, President Yoweri Museveni has sent his military into South Sudan. And it's, my opinion is that Uganda, it, it's not possible for Uganda to be seen as objective because they've been longtime supporters of the SPLA. Um, just to give you an example, the SPLA from the 1980s had been receiving a lot of support from Ethiopia. And then the government in Ethiopia fell in 1991 and they were kicked out and it, it was a major setback for them. And you, they had been receiving, the SPLA had been receiving support from Uganda as well, but this support became even more critical after the fall of the Derg regime in, in Ethiopia. And so those ties between the SPLA and the government of Yoweri Museveni in Uganda are very, very strong. And he also has a very much, um, let's just say there's no love lost between Museveni and Riek Machar because one of the many roles that Riek Machar played when he defected from the SPLA in 1991 is that he and other anti-SPLA groups in the South were conduits of military uh, assistance between the government in Khartoum, the government of Sudan, and the Lord's Resistance Army, which was, of course, trying to destabilize northern Uganda. And so you could see how, given this complex history and the fact that Museveni clearly has it out for Mashar, Uganda cannot be seen as an objective stakeholder, even though they're part of this objective, this, you know, this EGOD construct that is supposed to be objective and has historical legitimacy. Can I can I ask something to, to piggyback on that? Part of the the China South Sudan relationship is the reckoning that China faced that a supporting Khartoum for so long, you know, there's there 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 was some some tension at first with South Sudan, but one of the things that um, President Salva Kiir did was try to explain to the Chinese, look, we're gonna. We're going to be in our own country, but we're going to be open for business. And while on the ground there might be some, some kind of, there are tensions that that crop up in terms of memory for what the Chinese um, did to us or what Chinese arms did to us. In terms of the elite level, you know, bygones are bygones. Anything like that happening in in Uganda once South Sudan became independent and 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 the SPLA, um, you know. T- took over 
or, or is it just a party-to-party kind of relationship, and, and that is something that's hard to forget? I think relations between South Sudan and Uganda have always been strong. Um, keep in mind that Museveni was always on the side of the majority or the the dominant rebel movement, the SPLA, during the Civil War. And it was the SPLA that was the only uh, only rebel movement that signed the CPA with the government of Sudan, which made them an incredibly powerful actor. And so in terms of getting it right in ter- in with respect to relationships, Uganda got it right. And there's a lot of, um, I think Ugandans are actually, or I should say, were actually the largest expat community in in South Sudan. They had a tremendous amount of businesses and business interests there. And they have a lot of people um, who go back and forth across the border for business. And so I, I think that it, if Mashar were to, or, or any anti-SPLA elements were to come to, sorry, anti-SPLM ruling party elements. Sorry, um, I, I, I call them SPLA myself. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. But if any anti-SPLM, SPLA elements were to come to power and were to see Museveni's support for the prior, previous government as um, problematic, then, you know, that relationship would most likely change. Geez, well, that's that's really really interesting. Well, um, what about Sudan and, and Sudan's role in all of this? It is is Sudan seen as as um, an honest broker? I mean, at, at at least both the rebel movements and like the government in the cartoon. That's got to mean something, right? Sort of. So you. You really have to figure out um, what day it is to determine whether Riek Machar is in or out with the government in Khartoum. So when Riek Machar split from the SPLA in 1991, he tried to, um, he actually first, before he um, split from the SPLA, he tried to unseat the late John Garang, who is the leader of the SPLA. He tried to unseat him as the leader. And when he didn't get the support that he wanted, he um, was also unable to secure foreign support because Garang had a monopoly on foreign support. And so just as a result of, uh, just by virtue of the fact that Garang had a monopoly on foreign support, Riek Machar had to turn to the government of Khartoum that had long had this uh, divide and rule mentality towards um, anti-SPLA groups in the South. And so what you see from about 1993 until about 19, uh, 2002 is Riek Machar is pretty close to the government of Sudan. However, at the same time, the government of Sudan was playing him off against other anti-SPLA rebel groups because they wanted to keep the anti-SPLA groups divided enough so that they would not be able to mount a serious enough opposition to overtake the SPLA as the primary Southern movement. So you see, this is all very complicated. And it's one of the reasons why, as this crisis broke out in December, people were waiting to see what side the government of South, uh, of Sudan would come down on, because they had, an, until sometime, probably until sometime last year, the, the government of Sudan had been supporting anti-government of South Sudan rebel groups in the greater Upper Nile region. In And in retribution, the government of South Sudan had been supporting anti-government of Sudan groups such as the SPLM North in Blue Nile State and in uh, the Nuba Mountains in Sudan. So 
that's a, a very complex background. But the bottom line is earlier this month, about I think January 8th or January 9th, um, President Omar al-Bashir of Sudan visited South Sudan and they, the leaders, Kir and Bashir, came to an agreement that Su the government of Sudan would send 900 technicians to man the oil fields, um, the oil fields which I believe were previously manned by Chinese and other foreign technicians. Because at the end of the day, 85% of the oil itself is in South Sudan, but the pipelines to get it to the global market go out through Sudan, through Port Sudan. And the government of Sudan has suffered from many anti-government protests since uh, South Sudan became independent, and its economy is very much dependent on the continued flow of oil. And they've, you know, food prices have been rising. Um, there have been oil, uh, petroleum shortages, et cetera, because of the, the cutoff in oil supply between South Sudan and Sudan. So at the end of the day, the government of Sudan rather interestingly has sided with the government of South Sudan, which means that Riek Machar, even if he wanted to get support from the government of Sudan, he can't. So it raises the question of where can he get foreign support and how long can he hold out for? Wow. That was phenomenally in-depth. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> You're um, welcome. Well, uh, we're going we're gonna to put this to a close because I just wanted to, to add, add a little bit of, of, of context to some of the South Sudan relations. And you know, obviously it's a, a really uh, terrible situation. And, and yeah, um, every, every day that, that things don't move towards a, a ceasefire, you know, some bad stuff is, is happening and, and some of the reporting out there hasn't been too, uh, too positive in their, in their um, assessment of the situation. But uh, ho hopefully things will, will turn around. That's, yeah, I hope so. That's about it. Um, Leslie, real briefly, do you want to tell people how they can find you on the uh, internet? Sure. Uh, you can Google my blog, which is Leslie on Africa or leslieannwarner.wordpress.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Leslie underscore Warner. And that's Leslie with a Y, not I-E. <laughs> Perfect. And yeah, well... Thank you so much for your time, and, and you have a lovely evening, okay? Thank you. You too.